page 24 in your Bible, Genesis 32. Jacob prepares to meet Esau. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanam. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Labim and have, been, and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, a Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty female camels with their young, forty cows and ten bulls, and twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your, father, uh, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. Jacob wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. 
The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Uh, friends, let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God, we want to thank you now that you've given us your word. And we thank you that your word uh, teaches us the history of your people and uh, the fulfilment of all of your promises in Christ. We pray for the young people as they learn uh, next door in the uh, uh, Sunday school that they would be firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus and that they too would come to understand how, how to read and understand and apply the Bible for themselves. And we pray for ourselves that you would give us humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I was on the phone with a good friend the other day when he asked, how's work going? Fine, I said, definitely feeling blessed. Last year was the best year for my business and it looks like this year will be just as busy. The man on the phone was a Christian who makes his money by teaching leadership skills to uh, executives who are uh, finding their way in corporate America. And he wrote about this conversation in, in an opinion piece on the online newspaper, the Huffington Post. And the reason that he wrote about this conversation was because as he thought about it afterwards, he was disturbed by how easily the words rolled off his tongue. He was disturbed by how easily he was able to simply say to his friend, definitely feeling blessed, uh, with as much ease as he orders his lunch from McDonald's or does any other basic uh, activity in life. Now, he said, well, in many sense, what he was saying was true, that his business was flourishing, and he did want to, think, to thank God for that, but the question raised was this, why is it that when we Christians tell other people that we're feeling blessed, uh, that it's because things, have, things are going swimmingly for us? Why is it that uh, we talk about being blessed when we talk about things going well for us in terms of things that we can see and, and feel, uh, things which we can touch? Uh, you know what I mean, don't you? You know, this new car is a great blessing to me. Or, um, you know, finally paid off the mortgage, feeling really blessed about that. Uh, or the doctor says my body's in great shape. That's a blessing. And, of course, 
Those things are a blessing and those things are things for which we ought to be thankful to God for. But what about Christians who suffer from chronic long-term illness? What about Christians who are struggling financially because as hard as they try, they just cannot find a job? What about Christians who live in North Korea? What is our attitude towards blessing and the way that that so easily rolls off our tongue? What does it say about them? Uh, is God somehow not blessing them for some reason? Or is it that we're missing the mark when we only think of blessing in terms of the things which we can see and feel, the things that we can hold in our hands? Now, the concept of blessing has been an important theme throughout the book of Genesis so far, hasn't it? Uh, because uh, think about the promises that God made to Abraham. Uh, three promises. God promised Abraham that he would give him a people, a land, and a blessing. A people, a land, and a blessing. That'll do, yep. And uh, remember also that uh, as we're dealing with the story of Jacob, the big issue with Jacob and Esau was that uh, Jacob stole something from his brother Esau, didn't he? He stole from his brother his blessing, which meant that um, he would be the family head. It also meant that he had to run for his life, didn't it? <laughs> because uh, his brother Esau was pretty cranky with him uh, for stealing his blessing from him, and he wanted to kill him. And uh, as we've seen in the story of Jacob, that that meant that Jacob ended up a very long way from home. But it meant also that he married into the family of his mother's brother, Uncle Laban. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 30, which is we're dealing with chapter 30 to 33 today. By the time we get to chapter 30 of Genesis, I reckon that if one of Jacob's friends had dropped by and said to him, mate, how's life going? That uh, Jacob might have very well said, well, definitely feeling blessed. I mean, uh, life's going well. Uh, he might be saying the family's great. You know, I've got all of these children and plenty of sons and, and you've got to see my flock. It has really increased dramatically over the last year or so. But he might also say, the other side of the coin here is that life hasn't been particularly easy either. I mean, Uncle Laban, you know, I worked seven years for the hand of his daughter Rachel in marriage and on the wedding night he did the dirty on me and he gave me the wrong woman. I ended up marrying Leah. Then I had to work for another seven years to pay off actually having Rachel as my wife. And I've been working for him all up for 20 years and over that period of time he keeps on downgrading my wage. And it's been tough. It's been a struggle. I mean, struggle with my uncle Laban. Now, I guess that kind of sums up the story of Jacob so far, doesn't it? That's, that's where we've come to in the story of Jacob in Genesis. And so in chapter 30, verse 1 we see that it had gotten to the point where Jacob had simply had enough. Uh, to him it felt like it was now time to pack up his camel saddles, to round up his family, to get all his possessions to, and to head back home to his father Isaac, his mother Rebecca, and even to 
his older brother, Esau. Now, in chapter 30, we see that Laban was not all that keen on the idea of losing such a good worker. And so he makes him an offer. He says, look, Jacob, why don't you stay here for a while longer? Uh, Don't go home. Stay working for me. And, uh, you know, understand you're a bit unhappy with the the way the wages have been... Look, name your wage. Name your price. But Jacob doesn't want a wage. If he's going to stick around, he wants a share in the business. And the deal is this. Jacob will continue to keep on looking after Laban's flock. But when they give birth, every newborn goat, which is speckled or spotted, and every dark lamb will belong to Jacob. So Jacob is going to develop his own flock. And that's the deal. Now Laban agrees. But, uh, you know, the, the, as soon as he's signed off on the deal, Laban goes and does the dirty on Jacob because he goes to his flock and he removes most of those kind of goats and lambs from the flock. Most of the goats and lambs that are likely to produce goats and lambs that are dark, speckled, spotted, striped, whatever, okay? And the reason he does it is he takes them out of the flock, he hands them to his sons to look after, and his sons are doing so three days' journey away from Jacob. And so that when those sheep and lambs give birth, sheep and uh, and goats give birth uh, to animals that are speckled, spotted, striped, whatever, Jacob would not know about it. Although he did keep the speckled and spotted sheep in the flock, just so it wouldn't be quite so obvious what he had done. You got the idea there? I've just explained something which is really weird uh, in in the text, but that's uh, the deal that they did. Now, Jacob, you think that's weird. Jacob has got a trick or two up his sleeve as well, because in verses 37 through to 43, Jacob then went and placed some striped tree branches uh, near the water troughs. So he's gotten some tree branches, he's peeled away some of the bark, so it looks like there's white stripes on those tree branches. And he goes and places them near the water troughs where the uh, animals would come to, and uh, particularly when they were mating. The idea was if the animals saw striped branches whilst they were mating, then their offspring were going to turn out to be coloured. Now, I told you it's weird. And uh, something that does seem to have a more scientific basis was that he only allowed the strong ones to to breed. So it's not exactly scientific and I reckon that if he really wanted more animals for his own 
flock. He probably should have just prayed to God about that and asked God to do it. But still, uh, God nevertheless did cause a great number of streaked, spotted and dark-coloured animals to be born who were also strong and so these therefore became part of Jacob's flock. So that when you get to uh, verse 43, Jacob over time becomes very, very wealthy. Uh, he's got a big flock and he's able to put on lots of servants and he's able to buy lots of camels and cattle. He prospers, whereas Laban's share in the business takes a dive. Now, how do you reckon that went down with Laban and his sons? Well, uh, not great. Uh, in fact, in chapter 31, Jacob starts to pick up a very bad vibe in terms of Laban's attitude towards him. And God speaks to him and God says, well, now is a really good time to leave. Now is the time to go back to the family from whom Jacob had left 20 years earlier. Uh, have a look at that. Uh, we're looking at chapter 31 and uh, verse 17. Chapter 31, verse 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels and he drove all of his livestock ahead of him along with all the goods he had accumulated in Padam Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Right? Now remember the promise that God had made many, many years earlier to Jacob. Remember when he uh, was fleeing from his family, from fleeing from Esau, and he <clears throat> went to sleep one night, he put his head on a rock, and he called that, spot, that place Bethel. Now he had a dream that night, didn't he? And uh, remember the dream? He dreamed, uh, dreamt of a, a staircase from uh, the earth to heavens, to the heavens, and there were angels going up and down the staircase. And on that night, God made three promises to Jacob. He said, first of all, I will never leave you. Secondly, I will watch after you. And thirdly, I will bring you back home. Remember that? Well, how are we going in terms of those three promises? Promise number one, I will never leave you. Well, God's been faithful to that. We can tick off that promise. Uh, promise number two, I will watch over you. Well, he's kept him safe and he has prospered. We can tick off that particular promise as well. Um, Jacob had been very blessed by God. He had wives, he had children, he had great wealth. He had things that you can see and feel, things that you can hold in your hands, definitely blessed. But it also meant that he had a lot of baggage to take on his journey. And uh, there was some baggage that he might have preferred not to have had. I don't know what it's like in, like in your household, but uh, when we go on trips, there's one person who's responsible for packing the boot of the car, and it's not me, <clears throat> it's Cassie. She does a great job of it. And uh, we can see here that Jacob's wife packed some things uh, in the boot of the car, uh, metaphorically, the saddlebags of the camel, her camel, and we see it in verse 19. It says, When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, 
Rachel stole her father's household gods. What has she slapped? What has she slipped into the camel's saddlebag? The household gods of her father. It does tell us a little bit about Rachel. Maybe she just wasn't on the same page spiritually as her husband was. Uh, it may be that uh, far from trusting in God to, uh, to, to not leave her and to watch over her and to take them home, uh, she was trusting in these false gods, these uh, little small statuettes that you could pack into a little bag, uh, these little small statuettes that need to be carried themselves by humans, that need to be protected by humans, whereas you and I know that the true God is the one who carries us. The true God is the one who protects us. The true God is the one who brings us home. Big difference. In fact, this theft of Laban's false gods only made things much worse for Jacob. Because how do you reckon... Laban felt that when he realised that Jacob had secretly deserted him, how do you reckon he felt when he discovered that his little gods had been knocked off, pinched? Well, that's uh, in chapter 31, verses 22 through to 55, Laban, together with all of his relatives that he could muster up, went in hot pursuit. And he caught up with Jacob as well. Laban could have killed Jacob for what he had done, taking off with his daughters and his grandchildren, uh, stealing his false gods, not even giving him a chance to say goodbye. He could have felt that he had the right to kill Jacob. Have a look at chapter 31, verse 25. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? See, Laban could have killed him. Laban probably wanted to kill him. But what stopped Laban from killing him? The God of your father has spoken to me. And he's actually told me not to even say anything to you, good or bad, not to do anything to you. See, God had promised to bring Jacob home and God was fulfilling that promise. And so... uh, after a little bit of an incident where he tried to find his gods, uh, but his gods were actually protected by a menstrual uh, Rachel, 
she had them in the saddlebag and when they were searching for the gods, she said, look, I'm sitting on my saddlebag. Don't mind if I don't stand up, I'm having my period. And uh, so she didn't get caught. But they've said goodbyes and and Jacob was let go. Now, that brings to a close a a big chapter in Jacob's life. Uh, Because for 20 years, he had been struggling with Laban. And now that struggle with Laban was over. But it was a struggle which had changed him. It was a struggle which had taken the selfish, deceitful twin brother, the grasping twin brother, and had taught him a little bit about life and about suffering. Now the struggle with Laban was over, but God was not yet finished with Jacob. Because to return home meant facing up to the brother from whom he had stolen his blessing 20 years earlier. And so as his caravan of camels and his herds and his flocks and as all of his servants and his wives and his kids and the whole Jacob entourage, as they got closer to the vicinity where his family lived, what he did was he sent out some some messengers to go and to try to make contact with Esau, to tell Esau that Jacob was coming, to try to calm Esau down, to try to befriend Esau, to try to smooth the way so that this would be a relatively pleasant getting together rather than the opposite. He did that. But instead, when the messengers came back to him, they said, yep, we've made contact with Esau. Yep, Esau knows that you're coming. And the bad news is that Esau is coming out to meet you with 400 men. Now, that ain't good news. And uh, in fact... Jacob is scared stiff. So what did he do? Well, a couple of things. First of all, he then went and split his entourage into two groups, thinking that, well, if, if Esau attacks one group, then at least the other group's got a chance of escaping and surviving. That's the first thing he did. And the second thing he did was he prayed. Now, I want you to have a look at this prayer, um, friends. Uh, We see it in verses 9 through to 12, and uh, we're dealing with uh, chapter 32. So chapter 32, verse 9. Everyone got that? Okay. So it says, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to the country, to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. 
How about that? Uh, this is Jacob. This is Jacob who has never called himself the servant of anybody. Uh, this is Jacob who now says to God, I am unworthy. I am your servant. You have been kind and faithful to me. Save me, I pray. Now, I guess when you've got 400 men coming at you, but you can understand that prayer, but do you think Jacob has changed? Do you think there's been a softening of his heart? Well, perhaps. Then, friends, what he did was this. He then sent out servants in successive groups, like waves of servants, but each of those servants had with them hundreds of goats and sheep and camel and cattle, waves of these herds and flocks sent out in successive groups as a gift for his brother. But before Jacob meets Esau, there is someone else he must first meet. Now in verse 22... We see that Jacob uh, was at a place called the, uh, the Ford of Jab Jabbok. Do you see that? He's at the Ford of Jabbok. It's a stream. And they're on the northern side of the stream of Jabbok. But Jacob sends all of his family and all of his possessions over across to the southern side of the stream. Jacob stays put on the northern side. Now, later on, the Jabbok stream became the border of the first territory of the Promised Land. And so, from that perspective, it seems that to cross the Jabbok is to enter into the Promised Land. Jacob has not crossed the Jabbok. Jacob, it seems, has to have something done to him before he is to cross over. And that something is in verses 24 to 30. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Wow, that's a mysterious thing, isn't it? I mean, what do you make of it? Who is this man? Uh, why did this happen? Uh, what's, what's the significance of it? Jacob, we see, 
had the man pinned and he wouldn't let the man go until the man gave Jacob a, a blessing. But before he gave him a blessing, what did he give him? Well, first of all, he gave him a limp. His socket, you know, his leg was taken out, hip taken out of its socket. He gave him a limp. Secondly, he gave him a new name. Israel. You know, the word El in Hebrew means God. And so when you see El in anything, which is Hebrew, there's God is in there, in the name. Israel means struggles. God. And here in this context, it is explained that it means the one who struggles with God. And we're told here that the reason that the man gave him this name was because Jacob had struggled with men and with God. His life had been a life of struggle. He had struggled with Laban. We've read about that. He was envisaging that the, that, that next day he would be in a struggle with Esau. But on that night, he struggled with God. And he survived. He survived. Not because of his wrestling ability. Not because of his power and his strength and his might. Because, friends, nobody sees the face of God and lives. But rather, the reason that he overcame was because of the sheer mercy of God. And throughout his life, his limp would be a constant reminder to him of his subjection to God. And his name would be a constant reminder to him of the mercy of God. And that through struggle and promise that he survived, that his people, Israel, would survive. And indeed we know that the true Israel, the Christian church, the people who name Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour, not only continue to survive through all of the ages, through struggle, through persecution, through difficulty, through struggle and promise for thousands of years, we survive, we grow, we spread. Do not let anyone say to you that the Christian church is dying and will die. Don't believe that. I'm reminded of the French philosopher Voltaire. He was an atheist and he made this uh, very bold claim on one occasion when he said that uh, it took 12 ignorant fishermen to establish the Christian church and he said, I'm going to show the world how one Frenchman can destroy it. It's a bold, arrogant claim, isn't it? 25 years after his death, the Bible Society purchased his house. And uh, the house in which he was born and where he lived became a centre for a, a printing press to produce Bibles, to store Bibles, to distribute Bibles throughout Europe and the world. 
Jacob was now ready to face his brother Esau with humility but with confidence. And the next day in chapter 33 verse 4, as Esau saw his brother in the distance, he ran towards him and as he wrapped his arms around him with tears, he said, my brother, what are, what's, what's all this? What do you mean by all these herds and all of these flocks that I've met as I've been approaching you? And Jacob says to him, well, that's a gift. That's for you. He says, don't be silly. I'm doing fine. I don't need your sheep and your cattle and your goats and your cow. I don't need all that. I'm doing fine. And his brother says, no, 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 Esau. I want to give these things to you. I want to bless you, brother. I want to bless you. The man who 20 years earlier had grasped and stolen his brother's blessing is now just pouring blessing onto his brother. How had God blessed Jacob? Wives, children, sheep, cattle, servants, yep, great blessings. And the children, of course, were vital for the fulfilment of God's promises throughout the history of the Bible. But how about a changed heart? How about the, the humble, loving, repentant heart of a man who now knows God and wants to bless his brother? What's your idea of the truly blessed person? Lots of money, big house, <clears throat> good career, great looks. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed, blessed. Blessed are the people in whose heart God has worked to change their lives so that their lives no longer revolve around themselves but revolve around the Lord, the one who promises to never leave us, the one who watches over us, the one who will bring us home to the heavenly home. And that he's shown us that and made that possible through the death and the resurrection of his own son, Jesus. In, Colossians chapter, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If we are people who trust him, love him, and serve him with a humble and contrite heart. Friends, if you're a Christian then you have all the blessings of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we want to thank you for the way in which you reveal yourself through the very rich tapestry of the Old Testament, that uh, you are a God of promise and that you fulfil those promises. 
We thank you for the way that you worked in Jacob's heart through struggle with both men and with you. That he overcame not because of his might, but because of your mercy. And we thank you that what that teaches us is that your people, that your church will continue to survive forever. And we thank you that we can be part of that. Help us to be people with a humble and contrite heart. Help us to keep on trusting in Jesus and living for you and looking forward to every spiritual blessing that we have in the heavenlies because of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you.